On March the 1st of uh, last year, at uh, 10.30 in the morning, which would have been about 3.30 in the morning in Memphis, I was, um, I was seated in the home of a young uh, Hungarian couple who, um, whose wife, uh, the, 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 the wife of the home, uh, spoke perfect English because she was an American. She was a graduate of Stanford University, and her husband was a young Hungarian pastor, and they baked for us some poppy seed bread. Now, I know that that's very interesting to all of you, uh, my eating poppy seed bread on March the 1st of last year. The, the, the interesting part is that young Hungarian pastor is here. Uh, Kazi, come here. <laughs> and Lassi, would you like to come as well? I'd, I would love to introduce you at least. Uh, this young man, how old are you, Kazi? 39. 39. Young man. Um, uh, <laughs> Do you remember, this is, this is Andras Kazar, is that right? Okay. I'll tell you what, you take this, because and, um, and, they can hear me. Mm-hmm. I want it back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and he's very nervous. Uh, um, Ronnie Stevens married you and your wife, isn't that correct? That's right, exactly. When? Uh, 1990. And you have? July 1st. How many children? Three. And Three girls. Um, 11, 8, 5. And give us their names. <laughs> uh, the oldest is Christine, uh, middle is Esther, and the smallest is Hannah. Don't you like hearing? I, I'm just getting him to talk so that you can enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us the name of your church. By the way, I, I met with him on March the 1st and then uh, worshipped with you uh, about a week later. Mm-hmm. They met at 4 <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. And the name of the church is? In Hungarian. In Hungarian? Yeah. <laughs> it uh, doesn't matter. We don't have exactly name. Oh, we, who needs yet. a name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, gathering in Diozd. So it's an evangelical church of Diozd. Okay. Diozd is where I, le- I, where I live. That's where I ran off in the ditch. You remember that, that part of the story? You didn't know that part of the story. That, no. You, no. You remember the big snow? In, in, you don't remember the big snow. They don't care about the big snow. I was the only one that cared about the big snow. So I worshiped with them at 4 o'clock in an afternoon and then preached there. I guess it was late March. And Lotsi, is it Lotsi? Yeah. That's close? Yeah. Now, are, are you on staff at the church or are you um, <laughs> speaking to his uh, lapel there? Um, are you on staff at the church or do you um, work elsewhere? Yes, I am staff. And what is your responsibility in the church? My main responsibility is the legal and financial things and this other managing, like the office and other this type of stuff. And the second things like the, uh, with my wife, we do a, some kind of uh, family ministry. Uh-huh. I remember you were like having a family retreat that morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, one quick thing, then I'll, we'll move on to Romans 7. But, um, <laughs> you arrived here on Monday... Um, <laughs> on Monday, tell us, tell this, these folks about your arrival Monday, briefly. Okay. <laughs> so we flew from Amsterdam to Newark. 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 Yes, and Monday we arrived, and we supposed to uh, fly here to Memphis on the same day, but 
our flight was canceled, and we don't know why. But our... Uh, you look like a terrorist to me, Kazi. <laughs> <laughs> but our luggages, or the suitcases, went to Memphis, uh, exactly, or the director. So uh, we spent that first night in that city, New, <laughs> New York. For me, it's exactly the same than New York. <laughs> <laughs> Newark, New York, they're, they're, they're pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> So we spent that first night there, and we arrived yesterday morning. But the, the, the reason I bring this up is that Monday, in the United States, as you know, we instituted a new homeland security uh, dimension of the fingerprints. Guess who were the first to be fingerprinted? <laughs> and you said that yeah, experience was very, very enjoyable, didn't you, uh, Kazi? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I felt... Uh, I missed only a number here in <laughs> my chest because I had to take or put my finger first in my left hand and uh, right. Uh, what's the index? Index finger, yeah, and took a picture from me. Okay. Well, let me tell you real, real quick, and then they can go sit down. But see, it's so much easier. I mean, I, I, would, I went to his church, and I didn't understand a word that was being said. At least you understand half of what's being said. Right now? Yeah. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could or really, that time. I could really embarrass you, couldn't I? Um, but guys, I don't, I'm sure you don't remember this, but uh, I told you a story. Um, you know, I told you lots of stories from, from Hungary, but one of the stories that I told you was about a young man who during World War II was working in a factory in Budapest. Mm-hmm. His... Um, his factory, Budapest was overrun by the Germans. His factory was um, put on a ship, on a, on, on a, right. a boat, a boat and sent down the Danube <laughs> because it was producing something for the war effort. Yes, exactly. It was a war factory or produced guns and bullets. They, they sent it down the Danube and the Allies... Up. Up the Danube. <laughs> up the Danube. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> up, down... But it, so uh, toward the Vienna. Toward Vienna. And, um, and there the Allies were moving from the, from the west. The Russians were moving from the east. And his father, I mean, th- that story that I told you was about his father. And he had to make a decision as a 17-year-old man. That's right. Whether he, would go e- whether he would go west into the arms of the Americans or east into the arms of the, of the Russians. He chose to go to the, to the east towards what he knew, ended up as a, um, as a prisoner of war and went to a Soviet, went to... Uh, um, to Siberia. Siberia, I mean, yeah, for fine. 17 years. And he did nothing. And he met his, uh, your mother? My mother is Russian. In yes. a, he has a Russian mother and a Hungarian father, and they spent seven, and it was the United Nations that put pressure on the Soviet Union to let these prisoner of wars uh, out, mm-hmm. and he was released in 53? 56. 56. So therefore it's only 11 years. But oh, yeah. 11 years. <laughs> Don't embarrass me in front of my... 17, 11, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. It's a better story at 17, Kazi. <laughs> but, but, but the key uh, issue was that they, the Russian army took my father in Vienna, and uh, it was 
after the end of the war. So it's, it was illegal to get prisoners of war after the, the war ended. So that was the, the key. When he was released, he, was, he came back to his home in Budapest. And uh, in 1957, a year after they arrived, uh, Hungary erupted to try and throw off the Soviets, and it was crushed by Russian troops. And the reason that his family wasn't crushed is because his mother was Russian. Yeah, I was not born that time, so... <laughs> rub it in, yeah. Rousey, rub it in, yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, is like that, that not a fascinating story? If he'd have gone towards the Americans... <laughs> I would be not here. That's right. <laughs> but in so, the providence of God, uh, you found the Lord at, at, uni at your university education, That's right, when I was 20 years old. And met your wife there, too? Oh, at Camp's Crusade, uh, something or other. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, I wanted you to meet Kazi, and uh, if you've got any time, you'll be here through Sunday. I'm, he's going to probably say some more of this uh, Sunday morning, but I wanted you to meet this dear brother. Uh, he's planning a church there in Deosht, and, and I would um, delight in you getting to meet him. So, okay, you can go sit down now, and, and, and don't embarrass me anymore. By the Now we go to Romans 7, so take your Bibles and let's, um, let's get back to work. Now, I want you to realize something, that um, this is quite a daunting task that we have tonight. Um, uh, it, it is daunting for, for these reasons. First of all, there is always a problem with a weekly Bible study. The, the problem is, you don't remember what you heard last week. And Romans 7, actually, from really from Romans 4 on... Paul is developing this, this airtight argument about the doctrine of justification by faith. It is a glorious, um, uh, develop, a gloriously developed argument. But the argument, unfortunately, does build. And, and um, you know, because you can't remember what you heard last week, and I understand that, I mean, because it was probably so blasted boring, um, but it was six weeks ago when we last met. That means that we've, um, first of all, you're dealing with some very complex texts. There's nothing more difficult. And as you know, probably the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible is Romans 7. That's what we're studying. Um, it is a controversial chapter. It's a complex argument. This is a weekly Bible study, and we've been off for six weeks. That's, uh, that's going to be pretty hard for you to get much out of this. But um, I am going to do my best to try and, um, and, and start with a little bit of a refresher. You know, the, the, the best metaphor that I could think of was, was priming a pump. You know, if you're going to get, gonna get the, the real fresh water flowing, you're going to have to pour in some water, uh, particularly with the thing's got rust all over it and it's been idle for six weeks. To get it to where it can be productive, you've got to pour in a little water, and I don't know what it does, but it's called priming the pump, and, and you pour the water in, you pump it, and then, and then the, the stream resumes. Well, what I want to do in beginning it, uh, tonight is to go back and to pour a little bit of water back into you, and, and hopefully it will um, knock some of the rust off and remind you of some of the things that we discussed all fall. 
and then we can go forward. And, and we can go forward a little bit tonight if you like. It depends on how fast we, we do this. Um, but my primary purpose tonight is to, is to get you back up to speed so that we can um, move on in uh, Romans chapter 7. So let me do some things that are just refresher. And, and hopefully uh, they will help you as we move forward in, in the text. First of all, you, you must remember that, the, that, the, that Romans chapter 7, the purpose of Romans chapter 7 <clears throat> is to give you Paul's um, his fullest explanation and presentation of the role and the purpose and the function of the law found anywhere in the Bible. The design of Romans 7 is to explain to you, is to explain to the regenerate man, we'll talk about that in just a second, it is to explain to you the role, the function, the purpose of law, of the law. Now, that's, that's just a general overview of the entire chapter. Now, you might remember, because I, I, <laughs> I preached about it on Sunday mornings, on September the 7th and the 14th, the first four verses of Romans 7, because I was so swept away, I think I, you might remember, that I was seated in a, in a McDonald's in Vienna, drinking a cappuccino, studying Romans 7, while my wife and daughter shopped. I, I didn't care to shop, but I had a ball sitting around a bunch of people who didn't know me, and um, I couldn't understand what they were saying, and it was packed, and I was drinking this 90-cent cappuccino in, in, in um, Vienna, studying Romans 7. And I, and, and I came upon this, this, this image, I guess you would call it, um, in verse 4. Remember, verses 1 through 4 are all about, um, principally, they're about union with Christ. But specifically, they're about marriage to Christ. That is, the thing that so swept me away is this, this middle portion of verse 4 that says that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. That, that metaphor of being married to Christ, I am not yet quite over. And then hope I won't get over. But you might remember I um, took us to the book of Hosea. You remember Hosea is really about... Uh, the marriage of a of a um, of a fine upstanding citizen, a prophet Hosea, to a shameful bride, to a bride full of shame. You know, she prostituted herself. You remember she ran off on her husband. Her name was Gomer. Anybody by the name of Gomer, you will do strange things. But uh, you know, Hosea marries Gomer, and Gomer runs has two children by Gomer, and then runs off, and he buys her off of the of the of the auction block as a slave. Remember that? The whole book is about the the righteous marrying the shameful. That's what Hosea is about, y'all. Well, here's the image of the righteous marrying the shameful, marrying the full of shame. Um, I am, um, I'm, I'm not like a lot of you. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert. In fact, I've never read the trilogy. But I started reading it last night. <laughs> I, um, I read the first book, The Hobbit. But, and I was kind of nonplussed by The Hobbit. And, and I really didn't understand what The Hobbit had to do with Lord of the Rings. 
And so I, um, I of course, saw the movie, and um, I was in Hungary when number two, the Twin Towers, was going. And interestingly, we found out almost the day that we were leaving that Lord of the Rings Twin Towers was in Budapest in English, and we didn't know it. Of course, there's no paper that you can open up to find. I guess there is a paper, but I could never read it. But, but anyway, it was at a mall out there, and, and, but I just kicked myself for missing because I wanted to see the phase two of the Lord of the Rings, or the second part of the trilogy. Well, for Christmas, um, my daughter bought me the second one. And so uh, I guess it was Christmas Day that I spent that night, everybody else was throwing up in my house, um, on, on the eve of Eve, that is on the 23rd of December, I, sitting with my grandson in my chair in the living room, um, was puked upon uh, by my dear darling two-year-old grandson. And that set off a string of other pukings. <laughs> I mean, everybody's puking. <laughs> I mean, Gracie got it, Clay got it, uh, Scott got it, Susie got it, Stan got it. I didn't get it. That is one iron stomach you see right there, folks. <laughs> That's a heck of a stomach right there in a lot of ways. But, but anyway, um, so um, you know, while everybody else was just out, I was watching Twin Towers 2, uh, uh, second part of the trilogy. So that, and realizing that number three was out, and I, I had to watch two before I go to number three, of course. Well, I don't know if you've seen it, and I'm not going to ruin it for you. Uh, I don't think this will, what I'm about to say will ruin it for you. But I did see it on Monday. And there is, and I came home and I told Susie, and, and you know, people want to know, did you like it? Did you? Well, I really did. I liked it far better than one and two. Um, but there is one scene in there, ladies and gentlemen, and it's towards the end where Aragon, who, you know, if you try to pin a Christ figure on him, it's going to be kind of difficult because uh, Tolkien wasn't trying to do all that. He wasn't trying to give you a one-to-one relationship between uh, this guy and that guy and this guy and this. He wasn't trying to do that. But uh, if there is a Christ figure, uh, well, no, I guess there's a couple of them. But if there is somebody that kind of be a Christ figure, it would be Aragon. And Aragon, of course, leads uh, to a big victory. It wasn't a, a, the biggest victory, but it was a big victory. And um, at, towards the end, uh, everybody's celebrating the victory. And the, the woman that he had loved for so long, and her father, who was the bad guy in the Matrix, uh, her father comes and, and um, tells him her Life depends on your victory. You lose and she will die. She lives based on whether you win or not. And so Aragon goes out and wins. And then right at the end where this other girl that really loved him, she got pushed to the side and, and um, the bride shows up. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it was moving for me. Because of this, really. Because of Romans chapter 7, verse 4. The fact that the... Actually, this was not a shameful bride. And actually, she was gorgeous. And you're not. Uh, we're not. But, but the point is, the, 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 the deliverer was joined to his bride. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, this theme of the, of the Son of Man... Marrying the shameful bride is just, it's just captivating. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus died for your sin and you got a ticket to heaven stuck in your pocket and sprayed with a coat of asbestos so you won't burn in hell. 
That is not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is you're married. You're married to Christ. Remember that, that scene in Acts uh, 9 when Paul is on his way to Damascus and he's going to you know, gather up all the Christians. He's going to kill them all and, you know, and, and he's got the letters from the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and of course the bright light slays him and, and the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Now wait a minute now. Who was Paul persecuting? I mean, he stood on, uh, by and held the coats while Stephen got stoned by stones. You got that? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and he was on his way to gather up all those nasty old Christians and put them in jail. Who was he persecuting? He was persecuting his people. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, we are in such a vital union with Jesus Christ. To touch us is to touch Him. To persecute us is to persecute Him. Because we're joined. We're married to another. And I, and I tried to work out in great detail some of the applications of being the... Having, for instance, I have the same name. <laughs> I have His name. Um, and we worked out that implication of um, the fact that there is one fleshness between me and Jesus. Mind-boggling, ladies and gentlemen. Mind-boggling that the Scriptures would use such terms of radical intimacy to describe my relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the metaphor that's being used. Not, okay, you got saved. Did you hear? Bar, bravo. Let's stick a ticket to heaven in your pocket and y'all run on. It's far more beautiful than that. The good news is much better good news than you ever thought it was. What? I'm not just saved. I'm joined. I'm in union. I'm loved by the Father. Like the Son is loved by the Father. And therefore, I am permanently, everlastingly, eternally Safe. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, nobody can enjoy the doctrine of eternal security except people who understand that you're in union with Christ. You were buried with Him. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You were raised with Him. And you were seated with Him. That's what this is about. That's what I tried to do over several weeks. I tried to do it on Sunday mornings for two weeks. Then I came back and I did it here on Wednesday nights for several weeks. But that's, that's what verses 1 through 4 are all about. This married to Christ. The third thing that I'm just, again, I'm trying to just prime your pump. That's all I'm trying to do tonight is try to just, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. That, yeah, there's something about marriage. I remember all that business. That's what I'm trying to do. So that next week we can really, you know, maybe go forward. We might go a little bit forward tonight, but I doubt it. Um, one of the things that was very intriguing about the first six verses, by the way, that's as far as we got in the whole fall, is the first six verses, was, was a statement made in the middle of verse 5. Uh, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. And I spent a good deal of ta time on that, that whole idea of the law arousing sinful passions. You know, guys, the law doesn't make me more moral. 
it arouses immorality in me. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's, a, it's a known fact that the most frequently broken law in America, guess what? What? No. No, no, no. Cheating on your income tax. And yet, everybody realizes that the tax code is book after book after book. And it specifies very clearly the intent, the, the, the goal uh, of, the, the, of the tax code uh, so that um, uh, we will be able to know clearly how to obey it. Thousands of pages it takes to spell out for us the IRS code. And we have to go to professionals to get them to, 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 to unravel it for us. But... Um, it is that multiplying of law that ends up creating the most violation. That's what law does, folks. We seek ways to get around the law. There, there, are, there is a certain pleasure to doing something just because it is forbidden. Any of you with children, um, you know, you, uh, you, you say to them, Now don't throw the ball in the house! Quit throwing the ball in the house! And, and ten minutes later, they're throwing a hockey puck in the house. And you go to them and you say, I thought I told you not to throw in the house! And they said, they say, you told us not to throw a ball in the house. You didn't say anything about hockey pucks. Because it's, it's, it's an arousal that goes on, ladies and gentlemen, produced by law. Law doesn't save us from sin. It aggravates sinful passions within us. That's what that text says in verse 5. Morality, ladies and gentlemen, more law won't save us. The way to overcome sin is not to multiply law. The way to overcome sin is to preach grace. And, and the, the, every governmental, social institution in America is thinking that the way that we're going to reform this nation it's just multiply law. Well, take the tax code as an example to guide you. It does nothing but multiply the offenses. Rule. I, somebody, when I taught this back in the fall, who was it that came up and said this to me? Because it was so good and I said, I've got to repeat that the next time and I've got an opportunity. He said, rules without relationship produce rebellion. Rules without relationship produces rebellion. That's what law does, guys. It arouses sinful passions. That's his statement in verse 5 of Romans 7. Now, step back with me and look at verses 5 and 6. Again, this is all by way of introduction, reminder, refresher, pour water into the pump stuff. Verses 5 and 6 are the key to understanding the rest of chapter 7. 
Now, um, so if you missed five and six, I'm going to try to cover it in four minutes. Um, verse five gives you a very negative description, a very negative picture of the unregenerate man. For when we were in the flesh, unregenerate man, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Then you go to verse 6, and you get a very positive description of the regenerate man. Look at verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law. That is, the regenerate man has been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. First time that the Spirit's been introduced in Romans, except in chapter 1. But, and not in the oldness of the letter. Do you see the comparison and the contrast that's going on between 5 and 6? This is what we used to be. This is what we are now. And in between there, ladies and gentlemen, is that wonderful conjunction and, and uh, piece of negation or, or adverb. But now. And we talked about that. There has to be a but now in all of our experiences. That is, well, you know, I used to be this. But now I'm this. Yeah, I was in this direction. But now I'm in another direction. Now, let me, let me back up and say again, the key to understanding chapter 7 is in verses 5 and 6. Because the rest of chapter 7 is going to be spent in giving you a fuller explanation of what role the law plays in this newly regenerated man. That is, it's going to tell you the role that law plays plays and the role that law doesn't play in the life of the regenerate man. So what you what Paul has done is introduced to you in verses 5 and 6 this this marvelous miraculous change that has gone on in the life of the unregenerate man or in the regenerate man that is they were doing this and it was bringing forth fruit to death but now look look at it having died well let me go back we have been delivered from the law. And every system that, that, that creates some kind of self-salvation, we've been delivered from it. Having died to what we were held by. Remember, remember I, I used that story about... Um, um, what is her name? The um, um, Nabal... And, uh, and the, the David comes and marries his wife, and, and uh, he dies. And I said to you, you know, Nabal is dead. The law is dead. And now she sails off and is married to the king, David. She traded in a fool <laughs> for David. And the fact we've been delivered uh, from the law, having died to what held us, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, uh, and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, guys, what I'm saying is that little we in there, in verse 6, so that we should serve in the... The, the rest of chapter 7 is devoted to you. It's devoted to the we. And it is going to tell you the role that the law plays and the role that the law doesn't play. Um, all right, let me do this again. I'm going to give you another synopsis because I, I, I want you to be with me when we, when we kick into verse 7. 
the key to understanding chapter 7 really goes back as far as chapter 5. Turn over chapter 5 real quickly, and I want you to see two verses in chapter 5. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there are no... I mean, I, I would, in one sense, I want to tell you that the pinnacle, the absolute apex of Romans, of the book of Romans, is chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, where Paul makes such a sweeping statement about grace. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. There's the there's role of the law. The law came in so the offense would abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Guys, I know you don't remember this, but I pointed out in verse 20, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And they look like this, they are the same English word, but they are different Greek words. In fact, it, what Paul, I mean, if I could kind of insert something, but where sin abounded, grace superabounded. It wasn't just that grace came alongside um, sin and negated it because they were neck and neck. No. Grace has exceeded abundantly the damage done by sin. But, but the point is, having said that, that is, Paul, having said that, he now realizes that there's a couple of questions that are going to come up in the minds of people. The first question is mentioned in 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may, may abound? I mean, Paul, I hear what you're saying in 5.20 and 21, this abounding grace. Okay. If it doesn't have anything to do with what I do, how about this? Why don't I just sin it up so that grace can abound far more? And, and, and Paul says, wait a minute. No, no, no. And he spends the entirety of chapter 6 addressing what would be called antinomianism. Then, that's one question he realizes that's going to pop up in the minds of his hearers. Then the other question that he realizes is going to pop up in the minds of his hearers is, okay, what about the law? The first question he's addressed with an entire chapter, chapter 6. Then, the other question he addresses is what place does the law play? And he does that in chapter 7. But you see, it's parenthetical. The, 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 the monument that he has established is in 520 and 21. Uh-oh, that thing is so large, I know people are going to blast it, so I'm going to have to make sure that I answer all their questions. So he answers one in chapter 6, then he answers Okay, what is the role of the law in chapter 7? Chapter 7 is devoted to answering that question at length. And he tries in every way possible to make clear that he is in no way suggesting that the gospel entirely dismisses the role of law. That is, that, that as if it is completely useless or renders it valueless or pointless in, in any way. That's what chapter 7 is doing. It is giving us the function of the law in the Christian's life. Guys, here's the point, And with this we'll quit. He has already told you in verse 5 that sin, excuse me, that law would not justify you. Now he's going to tell you that law will not sanctify you either. 
That's what he's going to do in the rest of chapter 7. He is going to point out the, the proper function of law in the life of the regenerate. Lessons. Us folks. What is the proper... But here's something it won't do for you folks. We all understand, I think, that is to the degree that all of you are Christians in here. I'm hoping that you are. But never in the history of the church has a group this size gathered where everybody was a saved man. But I want you to know, your law works will not save you. No, ma'am. That's a system of self-salvation and it will damn you. Law will never save you. But having said that, I turn to the regenerate crowd and I say to you, it won't sanctify you either. Here's how you get holy. You just get on to that law and start obeying that thing. Won't do it, folks. I'll give you one example and I'll quit for the night. Anybody in here want to be humble besides me? Anybody need to be humble in here besides me? Or am I the only pervert in the room? Tell me. How are you going to do that? You're going to grind your teeth, clench your fist, and say, I'm going to be humble. That's how you're going to do it. Let me tell you. You are doomed to failure. Because the law will not justify. Nor will the law sanctify you. But I am by no means saying that the gospel in any way dismisses the law as pointless. The rest of the book will tell you the proper role and the proper function of law in the life of the regenerate. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will use these comments to whet the appetites of your people, uh, that they might long for more input, more data, um, more... Um, understanding of how indeed the law is to properly and appropriately function in the lives of we who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, again I say, what a privilege that we have, not simply to be saved from hell, that's wonderful, but to be joined in marriage with Christ Jesus our great Aragon of the New Testament is the one who has saved his bride by his victory at Calvary. He has taken the shameful bride and made her eternally lovely because of his finished and completed work. We glory in that, Father, and only in that. We have come to preach the gospel to our unregenerate souls We have also come to preach the gospel to regenerate souls. The law will do nothing but arouse us to more sin, Father. Save us from ourselves. Save us from foolish morality. And plant us into the glorious kingdom dominated by grace. We uh, commit ourselves to that and do so in Jesus' name. Thank you and good night. We'll see you next week. Say hello to Kazi and Kazi and Lotzi. Lotzi and Kazi before you leave.